interpretation of this dream. And so really quickly, if you'll remember, um, Nebuchadnezzar, and the story starts with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian captivity in, um, in Daniel, in, in, in Babylon, where the nation of Israel was sinning, and they were, um, they, they were for 490 years, they didn't let the, the land rest on Sabbath. The northern part of Israel had already gone off into idolatry. The southern part, um, years later, was, or I'm sorry, they had already gone off into captivity, the northern ten kingdoms. The southern kingdoms, where Daniel was from, was, because Israel was divided, the twelve tribes of Israel was divided, ten in the north, two in the south. And the north um, was into idolatry and, 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 you know, the Canaanite religions and all that stuff that they were doing long before the south. And so the north was taken before. And then, and then for this 70 years, God was judging Israel because they owed him 70 Sabbaths. For 490 years, they didn't let the land rest. And God said after 490 years, he was going to judge them. And he was going to let the land rest for 70 years because they owed him 70 um, Sabbaths. Or 70, every seventh year, Israel was supposed to let the land rest. And the sixth year, God would bless them with a bumper crop. And so what they did was they got greedy. And they enjoyed their bumper crop in the sixth year. And then they planted in the seventh year thinking, wow, that's like overtime and all this extra money we'll make and all these things. But it was um, not what God's will was or God's plan was. God continued to bless them every sixth year with bumper crops. And they continued to plant in the seventh. So the, the land, uh, they owed the land 70 years of rest. And because of the idolatry, Nebuchadnezzar has raised up this pagan king. He's probably one of the greatest empires the world has ever known in Babylon, what was built in Babylon, the Hanging Gardens, um, the walls around the city as we opened the book of Daniel. We talked about the phenomenal um, city and accomplishment that Babylon itself, the actual city of Babylon was. Where Nebuchadnezzar um, was from and where this city of antiquity was built is in modern-day Iraq. South of Baghdad is where the original Babylon sat. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes to... Israel, he conquers them, and he carries them back captive to um, Babylon. They're there for 70 years, and then we read a couple chapters ago where Daniel was praying and realized the 70 years was up, and he began to seek the Lord, and, and then um, when we get to Esther, I'm not Esther, Esther is a post-exilic book. This is called The Exile, the 70 years post-exilic are the books that were written right after the exile. So you have Esther, Nehemiah, and what goes with it? Um, Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, and Ezra. And those were the guys that went back and began to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. Re- Nehemiah went back and began to rebuild the walls. So, so the head of gold in, in his dream was Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom. And then he saw um, a breast and, breast and arms of silver. And then he saw belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And so he... God gives Daniel the, the, the interpretation that these were succeeding kingdoms. And the first one represented Babylon, and then the Medo-Persians, and then the Grecian Empire, and then the Roman Empire, and then the revived Roman Empire, the feet and toes of iron and clay. And you and I, where do we live? We're the people of the, of the toes. Remember that? We live um, in this era of this prophecy. We're right here in the revived Roman Empire. Um, the second advent where the, 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 the Roman Empire will, will rise again to power. The Bible says in Daniel through this prophecy that the Antichrist will come from the feet. He will come from the feet and specifically the ten toes. And so we know that Antichrist will, will come from the revived 
Roman Empire. He'll be from Europe somewhere. Um, but that's, that's a big, huge area because the, Rome, uh, the, the European Empire, today we think of Europe as, as, as what's Western Europe, you know, and, and the area of Europe. But um, there's also the eastern arm or leg of the Roman Empire because there's two feet there. And, and that includes a lot of the Middle East is technically Europe as well. And so you have the Middle East that's, that's in that. So it's a big area. So basically why I brought this up today was because where we are right now, now if you'll remember, Nebuchadnezzar dies and then his um, son takes over and he's there and he's partying and um, the, the Medo-Persian army has, has been attacking and sieging and he's in there and he's partying and, he, and they, 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 the, 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 the city's an impenetrable and he's full of pride and they're drinking and went into the temple or the, not didn't go into the temple, but they had brought artifacts back from the Jewish temple when they originally went. So he goes and he gets those things and he brings them to his party and he starts drinking out of the Holy Grail, not the Holy Grail, but you know, those things that were in the temple and the Holy Spirit and a, shows up and there's a handwriting on the wall and he and there's a writing, and, it, and the writing says, Meanie, meanie, tekel you farsin. And he doesn't know what it means, and it says that, and this is the Bible, it says, One knee smote the other. He was so afraid. And they went and they got Daniel, and Daniel came, and he read the interpretation, and the interpretation was, You've been weighed, and you've been found wanting. And so, and he said, This very night, your, your life will be required of you. And then that, as that was happening, the Medo Persians had found a way to the city under the gates through the river. They came in, they destroyed or sacked Babylon for the first time, and then the Medo-Persian Empire took over. So Daniel lived through that. And then Daniel began to serve the Medo-Persian kings. And so we have several successive kings. Now, originally, Medo was the, Medo Empire was kind of the, 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 the main part of that. Well, what happened in history was the Persian faction of the Medo-Persian Empire became stronger, and eventually they're the ones where the the, the narrative switches to them because they took over in power. And then uh, what we'll see in chapter 11 is we'll get to kind of see the transition from the Medo-Persian Empire to the Grecian Empire. Now, Daniel's going to write about it, but he's not going to live through it. Daniel's in his 90s when he's writing this, and he's writing about things 200 years before they happen. And, and so we'll see it. We'll also see in Daniel chapter 11 where the Roman Empire is beginning to rise on the scene. So um, that the, the date that's there that you probably can't read is 168 years before Christ. So we go from 331 years when the Grecian Empire overtook the Medo-Persian Empire to um, 168, and then Rome takes over from there, and Rome ruled for about 600 years until about 476 after the death of Christ. And so we'll... Um, that's kind of what we're going to cover. We're going to cover all of that history. And what God is going to do in Daniel chapter 11 is he's going to lay out exactly 100 years before it happens the, the history of what's going to happen. By the time we get to verse 36, the narrative is going to change, and it's going to go to what is yet future for us. And so everything um, to verse 35 is in, our, is in the past, and we're going to get to see that. The, the book of Daniel, of, of really all the books, the Bible critics, um, they hate the book of Daniel the most. Because it is so accurate that they just will refuse to believe that Daniel could have wrote it when he wrote it and when the time that he lived. Because Daniel would have definitely lived again in the, in the, during the Babylonian Empire 
and he would have survived 539 for the Medo-Persian, died shortly thereafter, and there's no way he could have written in exact detail, they say, the things that he wrote. It must have been written 400 years later. But that, that doesn't fit either because the things that he wrote could not have been written 400 years later. And so um, we know Daniel wrote it. Jesus said Daniel wrote it. That's good enough for us. But again, the critics, they, and, da- and Jesus called Daniel a prophet. But again, because they want to take the supernatural out of the Word of God, then they, they just won't, they refuse to say that Daniel wrote it. All right, I'm going to try to not put everybody to sleep tonight. That's my goal. Um, there is a lot of history, but we'll try to go through some of the history. Sometimes the history gets boring because the truth is just you won't remember. I'll give you a lot of names, a lot of kings and, and things. And so, you know, if I gave you guys all a test um, when I'm done, you might get a few of them right. If I gave you guys all a test next Wednesday night, you wouldn't have any of them. I want you to write down. So, But some of it is key. And, and so I'll just give you the whole chapter really in a nutshell um, first before we begin and get into some of this stuff. And, and why, again, did God do this? Now, there was reasons in the time that, that God wrote these things. And, and I, I want us to kind of remember that, that God continues um, this pattern even into the New Testament. But when we see where God lays something out 200 years before it happens, and it happens exactly as he said he would to the day. Again, it speaks of, of, first of all, to the Word of God, that the Word of God is the inspired Word of God. We found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest actual writings, manuscripts of the book of Isaiah, found at a cave in Qumran in Israel, hundreds of years older than the oldest ones we had ever had. And then what you found is these ancient scrolls that were found in caves in Qumran, when they read them in the book of Isaiah, they exactly match the Bible that you have sitting on your lap to a T. The Word of God was the same, is the same. And, and so we have that aspect. We also have the aspect that if God knows these things and He told them and we can see now, we can study where He laid it out exactly the way it was, when we read of future prophecies, we can be confident that those things are going to come to pass exactly as His Word says they are. And then we can also apply it to our own lives. That God does know everything in your life. He knows exactly to a T what's going to happen. And He cares about it. And, he, and He's going to ordain it. And He's there for you. He can move your mountains. And, and God knows, and He's not surprised by anything that you do or that's going to happen in your life, that, that God is prepared and that God has a plan and He can handle everything. And if God can do these things, He can do so much more and wants to do so much more in your life. And I think maybe we don't have a hard time believing that God can do those things. I think what we have a hard time with is, does God want to do those things in our life? Does God care enough? And and we see that he does, and he does care enough. Now, I heard um, somebody say, and this is, I don't think this, I don't know how well or how much this is out there, but this particular person had said this, that, you know, that the, the you know, and, and I've told you guys this before, but know this, that today the world we live in, governments don't run our world today. Elite billionaires, the money runs the world that we're in today. And the elite of the world, the top of the top, they make the decisions they trickle down. Do you think somebody like our current um, president is making world-changing decisions and directions? Yeah, I don't think so. I think the guy probably has a hard time deciding what he wants for breakfast. Um, but the, 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 and this has just been the case for a while now. These are puppets. All, most of our governments around the world today, they're puppets. Our, our world is run by the money, the bottom line. And, and so um, 
they were saying that these elite billionaires and the Illuminati, what do they, I don't care what you call them. They probably don't even have a name. But the Illuminati, the Bilderberg Group, the um, what's the other ones that are out there? Okay, that's a new one to me. The mafia, the what mafia? Kazarian mafia. And all of these kind of factions that we heard, the Illuminati, the Bilderberg, the whatever guys, you know, that um, they, that they are um, fulfilling these prophecies or making these things come true to be like some reverse psychology or something. I don't know. Like they're controlling it, and so they're making them come true. And that's not really true. It's just them kind of pulling strings. To me, I'm like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard against the Bible. Like, you got nothing better than that? If those guys really have all that power, all they have to do, it's so simple, all they have to do, and it right here, so you can just read it, and all they can do is make one of them not come true. And if one of them doesn't come true, they win. Then we can all throw our Bibles away and go home, and because if one of these prophecies fails, the Word of God fails. And God can't fail. God's not Nostradamus. And Nostradamus gets this credit for being this great fortune teller, foreseer, and the guy was 35% correct, which I guess is good. If any of us could do 35%, I, I understand it's good, but God doesn't have that kind of luxury. God, God has to be 100% correct or he's not God, and he is 100% correct. And not one prophecy of the Bible has ever failed, nor ever will. And if, if they really, if these elites really want to um, deny or kind of trick the Bible, all they can do is just make one not come true. All they can do is go to protect Damascus, Syria, that it would never become a ruinous heap. Because when it becomes a ruinous heap, as the Bible says it will, that's the next future prophecy. All right, I got to go. Um, so uh, we came from chapter 10, spiritual battles. Do you remember that? That, that there are spiritual battles. Daniel began to pray, and when Daniel began to pray, God sent the angels to answer his prayer. But it took 21 days. Now, I, I, I think as Daniel was praying, one of the lessons for us, listen, this is important, and I didn't bring this up in the previous study, so I'm adding a little wrinkle to our spiritual battle. And we've studied spiritual battles. We studied Ephesians a couple weeks ago about what was going on in chapter 10. The fact, and, and I said the main thing is for you and I to realize that we are in a spiritual battle. We don't see the spiritual realm, but know that there's demons and there's angels and there is a spiritual war that is waging around us. And even in our own lives, there's minions that are, that are attacking us and oppressing us. And, and, and we need to know that we're in a spiritual battle and we need to, as the Bible says, take up spiritual weapons against the things that are going on in our lives. And, and seeking the Lord through prayer and the word of God and seeking the, the Lord's protection. And so these things are going on. But one of the things that I'm impressed with here is that Daniel didn't give up. And, and I wonder if we give up in prayer sometimes. And, and maybe had Daniel given up by day four, or day six, or day eight, or day ten, that it would have affected the outcome of this story. But Daniel persisted in fasting and praying for 21 days, and, and then the breakthrough happened. You know, I think of, 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 of the revivals that have happened around the world, and here in America especially, the, the great revivals, you know, the last great revival was in the 60s and early 70s with the Jesus People Movement. It was all of the hippies that were coming out of, um, you know, the hippie movement and that were coming to Jesus. And the Jesus Movement moved all around the United States and they were baptizing thousands of people a week, Costa Mesa, um, at Calvary Chapel in those days. But before that, the story started in New York and one pastor got in his church and he began to pray and people began to join him 
and just for day, it was just a one day kind of afternoon prayer meeting. And they began to pray and it began to grow and people were coming and coming and they continued steadfastly in prayer for weeks and months. And eventually there was thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming and giving their hearts and their lives to Jesus. And it happened through prayer. And what you find, really, if you study revivals and great awakenings in the world, all over the, all over the world, it, what you find is that it always starts with consistent prayer. And, and whatever's going on in your life, you know, Jesus said, keep asking, keep knocking. And I think sometimes people feel like, why does God want me to do that? Doesn't that seem like, is God petty that, that he just doesn't, it's not good enough that I just ask him one time? Or that we just talk it through and then we get it, we come to a conclusion? But, but yet God's word says to keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. But it's not because God doesn't hear you. It's not because um, God wants you to beg him. Because God wants to know you. He wants relationship with you. He wants intimacy with you. And He also wants you to work out in your own mind, in your own life, what is important and what is real. And so as you continue, the things that you continue and persist in as you seek God, those things then, have you've weeded out really your own heart. It's like, you know, the example is when your kids ask you for something, your young kids ask you for something for Christmas, they see a commercial on TV and, oh, I want that, I want that, I want that, or they're here. And they... You know, they want this, they want this, they want that. But what you found is through the month of December, there was something that, 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 was, that kept coming up. And the one commercial that was just in the moment and they saw it, they stopped asking for that. But there's one thing that they consistently continued to ask you for for Christmas. And you, fi- you figured out that that was what was real in their heart. And, and part of prayer does that as, as we consist in prayer of seeking the Lord for the things that are important. So I think that's important as we, as we do that. Now, Last thing, and then again, we will start um, the new 11. But um, for last week, in the, in the spiritual battle that we're in, you know, some Christians obsess with spiritual battles and the fact that we're in a spiritual battle. I think that's a mistake. Everything they do is a demon and is a spiritual warfare. When I, you know, I didn't grow up a Christian, but I, one of the, the, the key reasons I became a Christian was I did have an aunt, my Aunt Lydia, my brother's, my dad's sister, um, who was a, a, a prayer warrior and a Christian and loved Jesus. I lived in L.A. She lives in Pico Rivera. If you know L.A., it's about 45 minutes um, north of, of L.A. where my aunt lived. And so, But we spent time with her. Not a ton. She was 45 minutes away and the freeways in traffic. And But we were close enough to my Aunt Lydia, and she prayed for us. And she prayed. And one time my sister and I were there in Pico Rivera, and we went to church with her, and she was um, very hyper-Pentecostal in this church. Um, and so it was a type of church where they, they readily spoke in tongues, they, um, they fell over, they, they were slain in the spirit where they would lay hands and somebody would fall over and the ushers would come by and lay a towel over your lap and, um, and, and the pastor would say things like, if he never got up and taught the word, then it was a great service because that meant the Holy Spirit broke out and things just happened in the spirit and he never got an opportunity to teach and, and everything was a demon. And my sister and I were guests in this church and, and the pastor um, wanted to, or one of the pastors, wanted to cast the demon of fear out of my little sister. And, and she was not even a born-again believer in Jesus, nor was I. And I'm like, uh, casting a demon of fear out of her, okay, but maybe you want to tell her about Jesus and ask her if she wants to ask Jesus in her heart first. Like, I think there's some more important things than casting demons out of everybody in here. And, you know, and you go back the next week, and it's a demon, and... 
you know, you have the demon of Twinkies because you eat too much, and you have the demon of nicotine, and, you know, in these churches, you know, with this philosophy and doctrine, you go and every week you can get saved, and you walk up and you ask Jesus in your heart every week, and, um, you know, you can only get saved one time. You don't need to come back up next week and ask Jesus in your heart. You're born again, you're born again, you're not going to lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. You can leave it, you can renounce Christ and make a conscious decision, but you can't lose it because you sinned. But there's this overemphasis on demons and on spiritual battle. And then when they pray, everything is like, it's like when you hear him pray, it was more like they were like, who are you praying to? Because you mentioned Satan and demons more in your prayer than you do Jesus. And Satan, you can't have this daughter of mine, a daughter of God's, and I cast you, Satan, I rebuke you, Satan, you demons of Twinkies, come out of her. And I'm like, you're talking to demons and Satan the whole time in your prayer. You haven't even mentioned Jesus' name one time. And, and so anyway, sorry. <laughs> Another little rant. But I, it's a mistake if we overemphasize Satan. The Bible says, he that is in you is greater than he's in the world. And let me remind you, if you do this, if you have this tendency, God bless you, but let me tell you something. When, when the, the warring angel of heaven, Michael, he was battling toe-to-toe with Satan, For the body of Moses, it tells us in Jude, it says that Michael said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Michael didn't say, I Satan this and Satan, and and Michael is Satan's counterpart. He is his co-equal. And Michael is a warring angel. But even Michael, the archangel, didn't fight Satan directly. He, He brought Jesus in between him and them. And the power of Jesus is where the power was. And Michael did that. So if it's good enough for Michael, it should be good enough for us. And if it wasn't, if Michael wasn't strong enough to do it in his own strength, you don't start praying to Satan and casting out demons and your power and all these things because you're going to get your butt kicked. Amen? You like your butt where it is? Pray to Jesus. All right, chapter 11. 135 prophecies of 200 years before they happen. Also in the first year of... Oh, we did that. You know what? We can even skip to verse 5. See that? I thought we, we went through the first four verses last last Wednesday, and so I won't go over them. Um, I won't even give you a recap. Let's just start in verse 5. It says, um, Also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion, and his dominion shall be a great dominion. Now, again, I told you guys last week, biblical prophecy has to do with Israel. There's lots of stuff going on in the world through human history, but in your Bible, from Adam and Eve to the book of Revelation, it's focused around Israel and the things that happen in Israel. Now, we're going to read, and again, it's a history chapter in 11, but I'll just tell you in a nutshell what's happening. It's going to mention kings of the south and kings of the north. Now, these dynasties that were there, um, they, they bookended Israel, Egypt in the south, and Syria in the north. And the, the, the Egyptians and the Syrians in chapter 11 are going to be fighting. We're also going to see the Greeks and the Romans briefly in um, chapter 11. But what's happening is every time these two countries are battling back and forth over this 200-year period, Israel in the middle is caught in the crosshairs. So that's if you, if you keep that in context as you read 11, even if you don't understand where exactly you are in every piece of 11... You'll get the gist of it because, and you could write this down. This is kind of the easy thing we write. Um, the south is kingdom is Egypt. The northern kingdom is Syria. The southern kingdom 
are the Ptolemies, or the Ptolemies, the P is silent, the Ptolemies in the south. Ptolemy, or Ptolemies, south, Egypt. Put that together, and then um, north, Syria, Seleucid Empire. But you have Ptolemy the first, Ptolemy the second, Ptolemy the third. In the Seleucid Empire, you have the first, the second, the third, um, the fourth. And so some of these are titles, and so they repeat, but you're talking about maybe a successive king or kingdom. But what we're going to see here is a battle and, a, and that God's going to detail. And because Israel is smack dab in the middle and they're going to get the worst of it in a lot of this stuff. And, and Israel in this point in their history, they're not. They had been in Babylonian captivity for so long. They had come home. The spiritual condition of Israel was in bad shape. And militarily, they were not strong at all. They weren't. They were not militarily strong. They, they wouldn't actually become military strong again until after 1948. Today, they probably have the, the, the greatest, one of the greatest militaries in the world. They definitely have the greatest technology in the world because they have a, a super spy in Israel. And he, he, I think his name's the Holy Spirit, and he's just really good at what he does. Um, and so that's basically, so remember that as we go through this, okay? The Ptolemies, we'll get to... Um, um, the fourth king. I, verse 2, real quick. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By the strength through his riches, he shall stir up against the realm of Greece. And so, um, basically, in a nutshell, there was these four, these three kings. The fourth one is the one that, that he wants you to remember. That's Xerxes. Xerxes was... Um, pretty famous. He's called Asuherus in the book of Esther. He's the one that marries Esther. He was very rich, and he has it in his in his mind to attack the Grecians. And so you have Xerxes, and and I, I don't know. We won't admit this in church, but we've seen the movie 300, right? Or some of us have the movie 300. It details a portion of this, and it's very Hollywood, but it is historical in the fact that this fourth king that is talking about here, Artaxerxes. He, he attacked and he, and he defeated the, the Greeks. And he had it in his heart to, to attack the Greeks. And so Artaxerxes, he beats Leonidas and the Spartan army in the Battle of 300 and at Thermopylae, the famous Battle of Thermopylae. Now, again, the things that happened in 300 um, are not historical, but the battle itself was historical. There was a battle in Thermopylae, Artaxerxes with an army of two million on one side, Leonidas, and the Spartans with an army on the other side. Well, do you know what happened in the second half of that, or 302? The Spartan army and the Grecian army, they grew, and eventually under the rulership of Alexander the Great and the Greeks, they came back, they beat the Medo-Persians, they beat the Persian army, and then under the rule of Alexander the Great and the Grecian army, they, they beat them, and they took over. They became the next ruling power of the world, and... Um, then Alexander died. Alexander the Great died at 32. His, his kingdom was divided to four different generals, and they went, and those generals began to war. So that's kind of where the, the kind of overview as we go through. So let's look at verse 6. And it says, and, and at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north. Who's in the south? You guys remember? Egyptians, right? Who's in the north? The Syrians, okay? So, so basically in this, this feud that's coming up or that happened in history, it happened exactly like this. 
Um, and the rest of verse 6, it says, But she shall not retain the power or her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place who shall come with many with an army, enter the fortress of the kingdom of the north and deal with them and prevail. So the south was going to prevail over the north in that part. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes with their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. So basically, here's what happens in the first part here. And again, it's the battle between Egypt and the south, Syria and the north. They, they make an alliance, as happens in all the movies that you watch of, of history. One, you know, the king of Italy and the king of France, their son and daughter get married. It forms an alliance. You send your daughter to a foreign kingdom, and if you did a good job as a dad, she becomes a spy for you in this other country and you have this key piece there in another country and so it's it makes sense for the king to send his daughter well the other side if if the daughter falls in love with the with her husband and decides to pick his side over her father's side then then the guy that received the daughter wins the thing because he gets a spy for his camp but it was just done in history so it happens here the the daughter of the king of it of Egypt her name was baroness she was given to a king, a prince in Syria, and they married. And then what it says here happens was then the prince in uh, the king in, in the, the Solomon king in Egypt, he dies. And when he dies, well, actually, I skipped a part of the story. So the daughter comes from Egypt, marries in Syria. Well, the, the, the prince that she married was already married. So he had to divorce his wife to take the, the Egyptian daughter. Well, then, then her dad back in Egypt dies. And then the prince says, well, I like my first wife better than this Egyptian girl. So he wants to get rid of the Egyptian girl and choose his, his other wife. So he brings his other wife back into the picture. And how's the saying go? There's nothing like a woman scorned. Well, his ex-wife, she's just bitter about the whole situation. So she murders the Egyptian daughter. And then she's not done. She murders her husband. And they had a kid together already, the Egyptian girl and, and the, the Syrian prince. So the ex-wife kills um, Baroness, was the girl's name from Egypt, her husband, their kid, and then she wants to rule. Well, then the word gets back to the son, the second Ptolemy in Egypt, the son, that what they did to his sister. And he becomes, his dad dies, he becomes the new um, uh, ruler in Egypt. And he hears what they did and killed his sister and his nephew. And so he wants to go down and fight. So that's what it says here in verse number 8, is he goes down. And this is him going down. It says that he took the gold and silver. They say that he took a massive amounts of gold and silver back to Egypt. Four talents of silver. In today's dollars, unsurmountable, the amount of dollars and money that that gold would have been worth. And then 40,000 talents of silver, 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver, and 2,500 idols. And I don't know who counted all this stuff and wrote it down, but... Um, we, we do have, you know, some of those. So with it, all those details are exactly right. We know what happened. So he, he goes and he takes. Now, why would he take all of their idols? The pagans always did that. It was like, my God is better than your God. So they would steal each other's gods. Not like they were going to help them. Like, if you just beat this, this army and, and you, you defeated them, their gods obviously didn't help them because you just killed them. So you're going to take them back. What good are they going to do you? 
And then Isaiah, right, God makes fun of these, these gods and this practice through the Bible. And it's, God actually uses comedy. And he says, you make these little idols. Because they literally would carve the idols. He said, you make these little idols and you carve eyes into them, but they can't see. And you make ears on them, but they can't hear. And you make mouths on them, but they can't speak. And the God of heaven can see and hear and can speak. And so that um, brings us to verse 9. And it says, also the king of the north... Um, so that's Syria. Now we come, the, the king that's mentioned in 9, if you're taking notes, is Antiochus the Great. Now we're going to get to a next king. He's called Antiochus Epiphanes. Now the term again, Antiochus, Antiochus the first, the second, the third, the fourth, what was a title. Well, when you get to Antiochus Epiphany, he's really where we're headed and where we need to study tonight. Because that's the, the, the sign of the Antichrist. And so Antiochus Epiphany is the one that we study in history. He's the forbearing uh, foreshadowing of the Antichrist. He's the one that's most famous. But before that, in this battle, the next succession um, in verse 9 is Antiochus the Great. And so, and not, not to be confused with Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was a Grecian king, remember? Alexander the Great was a Grecian king who beat the Persians. Um, and then it says in verse 10, However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, and then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. And the king of the south shall be moved to rage and go out and fight with him with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. So here again, we have the north uh, Syria, the south Egypt, they're going to be battling back and forth as they have with Israel in the middle. And that's why it's important. Um, and, and again, because God told in detail these things 200 years before they were going to take place. And in verse 12, when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former. And he shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. They say there in verse 13 that this is where they began to use for the first time in warfare elephants. And you see that in um, with the Grecian Empire where the, the Greeks came um, on, on elephants. It would be like an Abrams tank of today. Can you imagine, you know, you have a sword and a shield and, and, a, and an elephant is running towards you. It's pretty, you know, pretty impressive. But this was the equipment. So this amazing army that came from the south, from the, the um, uh, oh, I get them all mixed up. And I wanna, I'm confusing you guys enough, so I don't want to confuse myself here as well. From the Seleucid Empire, which is Syria and, and the um, north. And so then in verse 14, it says, Now in those times many shall rise up against the kings of the south also. Violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall not fail, but they shall fail. In verse 15, so the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. Now, does that sound the glorious land? What do you think the glorious land is? Israel. First time it's mentioned here, but that's Israel. When we talk about the glorious land, God is talking about Israel. And so, um, and then in verse 16, did you notice it says, he will do according to his own will? 
And I told you guys to remember that phrase because we've already had it with the multiple kings and we're going to have it in Antiochus Epiphany, who is a type of the Antichrist. And that is a satanic or demonic mantra or will. Do according to your will. It's really a, a mantra for anybody who, who's not born again or anybody who's outside of faith in Jesus Christ that you do your own will. Jesus himself, who set the example for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said what? Not my will be done, but yours be done, right? Not my will, but your will be done, is what Jesus said. Jesus said, I only do the things that the Father tells me. He said, I must be about my Father's business. And, and so Jesus, it says in, in Ephesians that Jesus emptied himself, that he humbled himself. And so Jesus, again, set the example for you and I, and he lived other-centered. The Bible says, um, for Satan, that I will be like God. I will rise up. Satan is going to stay here where Satan and the Antichrist, um, who's filled with Satan, it says he will exalt himself above all gods. So Satan lifts himself up. Satan exalts himself. Jesus humbles himself. Satan does his own will. Jesus did the will of the Father. For you and I, like, your will is second to the will of the Father, the will of Jesus for your life. And even as Jesus prayed in the garden, that we would be wise in every one of our requests, in every one of our prayers, to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, God. And so we have these, these, these polar opposites. You know, when they wrote the Satanic Bible, and really this is true even before, because the Satanic Bible came like in the 60s. Um, but even before that, the, the whole of the law is do what thou wilt. That's, that's the mantra of the Satanic Bible, and it's in the Satanic Bible. Do what thou wilt, for this is the whole of the law. So to be a Satanist, the main thing, like the greatest commandment, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Their greatest commandment is do what thou wilt. You know, Frank Sinatra, um, undoubtedly influenced by that Canaanite, demonic, Babylonian religion, when he sang, I did it, my way, right? You know, and he emphasized that I did it my way. And again, you know, I'm not saying that he's one thing or another, but I am saying that you see that consistency through the world and through that, that idea that you did it your way. When I die or when I sing my mantra song, I promise you it won't be I did it my way. No, I mean, I cringe to think that I would, I would yell out to the world, I did it my way. No, I didn't. I did it God's way. I did it the Lord's way. I did it according to His will and not according to my will. And so we have that again. So we, it's been twice already here in the first 16 verses. I'll point it out. We're going to come to it again in verse 36. Um, but that, that, that idea, again, is repeated over and over again. In verse 17, it says, He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus he shall do, and he shall give him the daughter of, of women to destroy it. But she shall not stand with him. Or be found with him. I'm, I'm kind of moving fast, you guys. There's a couple highlights I'm going to hit. Again, I told you the just of it is these two armies going back and forth around Israel. Um, and then in verse 18, it says, After this, he shall turn his face to the coastland, and he shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. So if you're taking notes, you can write next to verse 18 that Antiochus the Great now in this point in the history dies and Antiochus Epiphanes takes over. So from verse 18 to about 35, we're going to be seeing this Antiochus Epiphanes with a little bit of a, a, a story change in there. 
and he's the one that's important. He was Antiochus, because that was the name that he would have inherited. And then he added the name Epiphanes, of the gods. And so he, he believed himself to be divine, and he wanted to be called God. And so um, he, he added the term Epiphanes to his name. The Jews had him, something else they called him that meant he was Antiochus, the whack job, and, and that he was crazy. And he was crazy. But he was a picture of the Antichrist. In verse 19, it says, oh, also, too, just another note here. Um, in this time in history, as, as Antiochus Epiphanes starts to reign, um, you also have the beginning of the Roman Empire. Maybe not the, the 168 where they destroy Greece, but they are starting to rise. The Romans are starting to be a player in the world scene. Again, we're going to see them here in this chapter as they um, start to rise up on the world scene because we're moving hundreds of years past where Daniel's writing this. And then in verse 19 he says, Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. And there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. Who's the glorious kingdom? Israel, caught in the crossfires. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in, an, in anger or in battle. And in his place shall arise a, a vile person to whom they will not give honor nor or royalty. This is Antiochus Epiphanes who's going to rise up here. Um, verse 21. But he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. That's exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did in history. He made a peace treaty with Israel. He came in as a nice guy. He, he talked with them. The, the, the Egyptians and the Syrians have been warring all these years around you and there's all these things and he's the king of the Syrians of the Seleucid Empire, Antiochus Epiphanes. And when he first came on the scene, history tells us that he met with Israel in a peace treaty and he made a peace treaty. I'm going to ensure that there's peace in Israel. I'm going to take care of you guys. And eventually it's going to end in war. Now, what is the Antichrist going to do when he comes on, the pow on power? What's the first thing he does? Daniel 9.25. He makes a peace treaty with Israel and then it's good for three and a half years. He makes a seven-year deal with Israel and then he's going to break it. So again, these are pictures of um, future things, and we have these. Now, the Bible does this all the way through. Uh, you know, we're studying Revelation, and we're taking a certain track on Sunday mornings. And in order to take a different track on Sunday mornings, I would spend hours, uh, it would take a long time. So it's something maybe we do like in a, in a real in-depth study. But like, um, you know, the silence in a half an hour is what we studied on Sunday. I said, you know, there's silence in heaven for a half hour. I said, there's no women in heaven. That's how we know. Just kidding. But it helps you remember the verse because there was silence in, in heaven for a half an hour. Well, that, that entire picture is, um, remember when Joshua, and then, and then right in there we're beginning the, the trumpet judgments. Well, in Joshua, they were told to march around the city and blow the trumpets. And also they were told to have a time, they were supposed to be silent. And, and so there's these parallels. And they exactly are laid out um, to what's coming in Revelation. You have that all through the book of Revelation. Um, we talked about one of the judgments is Wormwood. And, and Wormwood is, is an asteroid or something that's on fire, that's like a mountain that's going to hit the waters and make the waters bitter. In Moses' story, in Moses and the children of Israel, they drank the waters, and the waters were Mara. They were bitter. And Moses was told to cut down the tree and throw it into the, um, the water. And the waters became sweet. And so, again, it's a parallel to, to the story, a foreshadowing of the things in Revelation. 
And you have that all the way through. Now, again, I just told you both of those things, Joshua and Moses, in very, very short. I mean, we could, we could really lay them out and look at the things, and you'll see fascinating, fascinating parallels between other places in the Bible with um, the book of Revelation. We have the same thing here. We have this parallel of this, of this character, Antiochus Epiphany, who is a perfect foreshadowing and model of, um, of the Antichrist. The, the, there's even those that believe that Antiochus Epiphany fulfilled the abomination of desolation that Daniel um, prophesied about in chapter 9. But we know that can't be the case because then um, 150 years later, um, Jesus is teaching Matthew 24, and he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, um, so he's talking yet future, so he couldn't have been talking about Antiochus Epiphanes who lived 150 years before Christ. Now, again, also remember where we are and where these events are unfolding is your Bible has a 400-year silence from Malachi or that famous Italian prophet Malachi to, um, to Matthew. The, in the history, there's a 400-year gap from Malachi to Matthew. And, and the Bible says nothing. There was no move of the Holy Spirit. There was no working. That's when you have Antiochus Epiphany. We're going to see here the... Um, the Maccabean revolt because of Antiochus Epiphany, Judas Maccabeus raises up. Now, there's a book called the Book of the Maccabeans. Anybody ever heard of that? I believe I was going to check it because I didn't want to say it if it wasn't there and I didn't get a chance to check. But I'm pretty sure that in the Catholic Bible, they have some added books. And that's one of them, the Book of Maccabeans. Brian's shaking his head. Yes, I'll be back there confirming that's true. So it's the Book of Maccabeans is in the Catholic Bible. They have some extra writings where they chronicle or they wrote this book about this particular story that we're studying right now about Antiochus Epiphany and then the Jewish revolt that raised up under Judas Maccabeus and these, these Jews who fought back against Antiochus Epiphanes and his revolt. But we don't have it in our Bible. It wasn't canonized, and so for whatever reason, it, it didn't meet all the criteria to become canon and therefore not um, an official part of the Word of God. But probably got some cool history in it. Um, somebody say something? Nope. Okay, sorry. Lost my place. Where's uh, 22? Okay. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. Antioch's Epiphany on the rise. Um, you, you know, one of the things, if you go in Israel today... And, and as Antiochus Epiphany comes in originally, you know, with this peace treaty, um, if you ask Israel today, ask a Jew today, find a Jew and ask him, how do you know if they're Orthodox or if they're religious? How do you, how will you know when Messiah comes? And, and usually, maybe some other things, but usually the patent answer that they're looking for, they say, because when Messiah comes, he'll do two things. He'll bring us peace and he'll rebuild our temple. And that's what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to sign a peace treaty and he's going to rebuild their temple. But, but to the Jews, that, that'll be good enough. If someone can, can bring a peace treaty with their Arab neighbors and, and they don't have to worry and they, they can rebuild their temple and continue to, to, to do sacrifices, they're, um, they're going to be happy. But that's what, again, what, what he's going to do. And slowly but surely, he's going to be against them. That's what we see progressing here. In verse 24, it says, He shall enter peaceably even into the richest pal- places, of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them 
the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plan against the stronghold, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south and the Egyptians with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise a plan against him. So he's going to march against um, Egypt again. Now they've been back and forth, right? In the first part in verses 6 through 9, it was the Egyptians who were coming down and beating them up. Now they're heading back up and they're going to win. In verse 27, both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper for the end will stir, will still be at the appointed time. So verse 27 is an exact prophecy a detailing today's politicians. Exactly. It says they're going to sit at the same, same table and they're both going to tell lies and none of it's going to prosper. And that's, that's a joke, okay? That, but that, that's kind of how it feels, right? So they do. It's like he, they, they're both telling lies. It's like, okay, we stand on one side or the other, but you can't trust either side because they're both lying. They both have alternative motives. And that's what's going to happen between these two kings. They're going to sit down at the table and these supposed um, kind of negotiations. But the Holy Spirit records here that they're both just lying through their teeth and, and the end doesn't turn out good. And in verse 28, it says, While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. And at the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come, those are Roman ships, come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage. Everybody say, in rage. We're getting to the crux now. Okay, now I'm going to slow down because I was trying to jam through those because we've got to go slower through the next, next section here. Damage and so shall return and show regard to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So let me tell you what's going on at 2930 in this part. Antiochus Epiphanes, he does go to Egypt and he has an amazing victory. He destroys Egypt all the way to Alexandria, destroys, um, but, but doesn't destroy all of Alexandria. And there's, if you, if you study this, you've heard this, there was a famous library in Alexandria, Egypt, with the amount of volumes of books and of history that were kept. They burned the library. And, and so, so much of history and this big, huge um, fire in this, this famous library in Alexandria, Egypt. But Alexandria is, is, is for the most part, spared but they lose the library and the history. Well, at that point, the Romans show up, and the Roman Senate had sent the, the, the a delegation out to meet Antiochus Epiphanes and tell him to either return back to where he came from or face the full brunt of the Roman army. Now, I'm, I'm making up the actual words, but basically this is what happened. And they told him to either stop and go home or, or, or face the army. And Antiochus Epiphanes said, I need time to make my decision. I need to talk to my, my people and my troops. And I need some time before I can give you an answer. And, and this is so cool. The Roman legion takes his staff and he draws a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes. And he says, take all the time you need, but don't leave the circle. And he has to make a decision. So Antiochus Epiphanes obviously doesn't want to face the Roman Empire and the Roman army at this time. So he tucks tail and he goes back from Egypt in the south to where he's at on Syria in the north. What's in the middle? What's in the middle, people? Israel. And it says he returned with what? I asked you guys to say it out loud. With rage. 
And so Antiochus Epiphanes, who was already demonically um, influenced, demonically possessed, and he was um, a hater of the Jews. It is demonic in nature. The three um, major kind of names in history are Hitler, Antiochus Epiphanes, and Caesar Nero of Paul's day. And every one of them murdered Christians and hated Christians and Jews. And, and so Antiochus Epiphanes is demonically um, inspired and sure possessed. He, he's, he's got it in his heart that he hates the Jews and he wants to do genocide against them. He has this victory in Egypt. He gets met by the Roman army. He gets embarrassed and tucked tail and he's on his way home and he's mad and he's with rage and he takes it out on Israel and what, is what happens in history. It says that when he got back to Israel on his way to Syria, that in the first week he was there, that he killed 40,000 Jews. And then, and then within a month of him returning, 100,000 Jews were dead. That's all of Tooele County. You know, we read these numbers, 40,000, 100,000, and it just goes in one ear and out the other. But that's everybody you know that lives in all of Tooele County. That's the biggest Tooele County is from Lake Point past Sansbury and everything that's extended on Tooele County. Our, our county population is about 75,000. That's 25,000 more people than, that are in our county and everybody we know that's dead. And so, and verse 31, look at verse 31. It says, And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the, big word in the Bible, verse 31, you with me? The abomination of desolation. And so this is what... Um, is a foreshadowing to the one that Jesus prophesied that is yet to come. And so um, Antiochus Epiphanes, he stops daily sacrifice. He doesn't let him read their Bibles. He doesn't let him perform circumcision anymore. Uh, I told you the stories, but Antiochus Epiphany was famous in history because if you circumcised your child, he would kill the baby and he would make the mother wear it around her neck until it rotted. Or he would kill her and her family. And he was that vile and evil killed and murdered 100,000 Jews in his first month returning. He went into the Jewish temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar, which was um, unkosher, right? And a pig to a Jew is as evil and demonic as you can get. And they called it the abomination of desolation. It was not, it was a foreshadowing of what the Antichrist is going to do. And what's the Antichrist going to do in Revelation? He's going to go into the rebuilt Jewish temple. He's going to erect an image of himself. And, and, I, and I wish we had time. Now I'm out of time. But he, he, the Antichrist, maybe we'll look at this next week. The Antichrist is going to take this image and he's going to, it's, it says it's going to have um, the ability to move. It's almost going to be like an AI. It's something futuristic. And it's something that we just can't even wrap our minds around because whatever he sets up in the temple, it's an image, but it has powers. So yeah, I tell you a million things. A robot. I mean, just I, I think I hate to even say things like a robot or a, a, a AI, and because it's it's I don't think we can wrap our mind around what the technology and the and the ability that the Antichrist will have to do this. But he's going to go into the temple, and then the Jews are going to flee. They're going to flee. It tells us in Matthew 24. Jesus says, "When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Matthew the or by Matthew by Daniel the prophet, flee." To the mountains. So Israel is literally who is in Israel. They're in um, Jerusalem. 
Tel Aviv and, and all over, they're going to flee. It's very possible, not far from Israel, right across their border, is the country of Jordan. And in Jordan is, is an ancient city called Petra. And a lot of people believe that that is the place that God is going to prepare for the Jews because it will hold hundreds of thousands and sustain them. There's only one way into Petra, and they call it a seek. And it's, it's stone rock walls that are 40 feet high, and, and they go like this as you go through there. And they're narrow in places. And they're 40 feet on both sides, and they're just granite rock. And then it forever, I don't know how long the seek is, 100, 200 yards. And then you come out, and it opens up into this valley that goes this way forever. And in there, um, you, you could fit a ton of people, and, and they'll be sustained. There's water. There's, there, there were civilizations that had lived there. And so we visited. It's one of the stops on our Israel tour. We go to Israel, we, we, we visit that. And I've been there. And I remember our guide was telling me, um, he was an Arab guide, because you have to leave your Jewish guide in Israel when you go over to Jordan. And for, for the couple of days that we were there, we picked up a different guide. He had an Arab guide while we were there. And he said, yeah, some people, they come here. And he said, they leave papers all over the, the, the place, you know, in Petra. They were leaving tracks, Christian tracks, because of this verse, thinking the Jews were going to go there and they were going to read their track and get saved. Like, good on you, Christian. Okay, like you have some, some hoops, but really? Like, you think that, that your track you're going to put there is some Jews going to come here in the middle of the tribulation period and because of your track, they're going to get saved? Oh, my. I guess say God bless if they're doing something, but do they really think that? I guess. I don't know. But so I was, I was telling the guy, the Arab, who didn't understand either, and I'm telling him, and I know, of course, I'm like, why would they do that? And he's like, oh, I don't know. They think that the people are going to come here or the Jews are going to come here. And he's telling me, like, why they would do that. <laughs> and I'm acting, I'm just playing dumb. And I'm like, why would, they, why would the Christians want to do that? You know, why would there be tracks here? But that's this place where they're going to flee after the abomination of desolation. Um, is Matt here yet, you guys? Do we have worship yet or no? Yeah? Okay. Let's have, because uh, we're, we're out of time. So I, I won't finish. Again, we won't. That's okay, because we're going to do the rest of this and 12 tomorrow. But then we'll just get on the Antichrist next week. Because by the time you get, let's get to verse 36 tonight, or 35, because that's the end of Antiochus Epiphany. And then in 36, everything from 36 to 45 is about the Antichrist. It's yet future. Read ahead. It says, and you guys, I won't tell you tonight what I think this is. I'll just tell you what it says. It's going to say of the Antichrist that he, he will not regard women. He'll have no regard of women. And it says that he will not serve the God of his fathers. So try to figure out what you think those two things mean. I'll, I'll read the verse to you. Um, verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. Nor regard any gods, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Verse 37. Next week I'll tell you what I think those two things mean. They are very important. Let's finish to verse 35 and then we'll call it a day. So it says in verse 32, Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And again, just like in any of these things, there are Jews who help the enemies over the years. We've seen that. The most famous Jew is, is Judas Iscariot, right, who helped the enemies. We, we have a famous Jew in our world today who is totally helping the enemies by the name of George Soros. And George Soros is a Jew of Jews. And, and what's, what's fascinating about his story is that as a young man, he would have went to concentration camps, but his Jewish parents 
gave him into the hands of a, of a Catholic family or a Christian family um, who were not Jews, to, and they claimed him as their own. And, and at like four, five, seven, nine years old, his parents went into the, into the Holocaust and into concentration camps, and he was spared because he was adopted by this, this family who kept him out of the Holocaust. And then what he did as a young man is he helped the um, Nazis identify Jews so they would be taken to the concentration camps as a Jew. That's the kind of person he is from a young age. So you have those, and, and we'll see them kind of here with those exploits. You guys, if Matt's ready, we'll come on up. We'll close in a couple songs. Um, in verse 33, it says, and, the, and those of the people who understand, and I read that, yeah, understand, shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and by plundering. And now when they fall, verse 34, they shall be, be aided with the little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still at the appointed time. Hey, make a note right there, 34 and 35. Um, that's where we're going to stop. 35 kind of ends talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and it's going to go on and talk about um, specifically about Antichrist through the end of this chapter. Now, the end of, of, of Antiochus Epiphanes was Maccabean revolt. So Judas Maccabean, I'll tell you the quick story as we close. Um, they finally um, decided to rise up against the oppression of Antiochus Epiphanes over the Jewish people. They were finally, of all the, them not being able to worship and the absolute demonic tyranny that they were facing. And so the, the Maccabeans began to fight back, and they, and they finally destroyed, they killed Antiochus Epiphanes, they, they destroyed their army, they took back Jerusalem. When they, when they got the temple back, they went into um, light the menorah, and they only had, this is a story you guys will know as I say it, they only had enough oil for one day. So they decided because of the victory that they would light the menorah, and, and the oil was only for one day. According to the law of Moses, in order to make the oil that goes in the lamp, it's, there's all, it's not just a physical process. It's also spiritual, as the, a lot of the rituals are in Israel. But it took seven days to go through the process to make the oil to fill the lamps. They only had enough oil for one day, and then they had a seven-day process that they had to begin to make enough oil to, to continue. So they light the lamp, and the story goes that God kept the menorah lit for eight days, the eight days of of what is now Hanukkah, right? And that's how the story goes. That miraculously, just like so many other places in the Bible, God never let the shoes of the Israelites wear out for 40 years. That he kept the light of the menorah lit um, for eight days. And so you have this arcan... Oh, where's it at? Oh, right there. My menorah that's over there is a seven-candle menorah that was um, for the temple. The, you see in the, in the, in, for the Hanukkah, it's eight um, candlesticks. Jesus would have celebrated Hanukkah, surprisingly enough, even though it's not one of the, the Jewish feasts. It's not one of the historical Jew, Jewish feasts because it didn't happen um, until, I think, 124 um, B.C. Don't quote me on that, but it's around there when, when this happened. But we do see in the Gospel of John where Jesus is attending the Festival of Lights, it was called, or the Feast of Dedication. That's Hanukkah as it's celebrated today. Amen? All right, next week, test on the history lesson of the uh, Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Let's pray. Father God, we come. Let's stand together.
Father God, we come before you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And we thank you for your blessing, Lord. And we thank you, Jesus, that you love us and that, Lord, you can take care of our lives and that, Lord, you know all things that are going to happen and that, that, God, you've ordained them. And we thank you and praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.